the Lord, he's a good dude, he's, he's going to be great. He's going to be the serpent crusher. But last week we saw that the serpent's venom runs through David's veins as well as he has an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So when you're reading that, whatever chances you thought of David being the serpent crusher, you're like, no, not going to happen. But there's something else that the narrator does. The narrator does like a little wink to you. He wants you to know this is certainly not the serpent slayer. This guy's a part and parcel with the serpent. Like, so check this out. In the, sto- in the way the narrator says the story of David and Bathsheba, he records that David saw her and he saw that she was beautiful and he took her. Now you may be saying, Isaac, that sounds like you're reading a little bit too much into saw beautiful and took but the authors know what they're doing he changes up some hebrew words where in hebrew it's actually a little awkward but the flexibilities of these words still get the story across but they also take you back to genesis so david is out on the roof and he saw ra'ah that's not a big deal sees this pretty simple word he saw that bathsheba was very not the hebrew word for beautiful David saw that she was very tov. He saw that she was very good. Now, this is an awkward sentence. There's Hebrew words for beautiful. But the author says, no, no, David sees. And rather than listening to God, he sees that which is forbidden. This woman is married. She is forbidden. But he says, not forbidden, tov, good. And then he takes, lakaz her. And so it's a way for the author to let you know, kind of with a wink, don't think for a second this David guy is going to be the serpent crusher. So then the next thing you should be asking is, okay, next in line, who's the next king? Maybe he's going to be all right. And this gets us to the story of David's children. Before we start that, though, know that David's children are now being brought up in an environment where their father has committed adultery murder, he kills Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and he also has a growing habit of polygamy. If he sees another woman and she is good, he takes her, adds him to his growing list of polygamous relationships. David's out. Let's read about the next in line. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnim, David's son, loved her. This is already kind of weird, like the sentence construction. So you got like, there's Absalom, who's David's son, and he has a beautiful sister whose name is Tamar. But then Abnim is introduced, but it doesn't say that he's Tamar's brother or Absalom's brother. It just says that he's David's son. So what's going on? This is why the genealogies that you skip over are important. Genealogies is the best reading. Amnon is David's now first in line to be king. From the first wife, first adult son to reach adult age. This is important to the plot. Amnon is the heir apparent. 
Absalom and Tamar are from David's third wife, Machah. They are full brother and sister. Amnon is Tamar's half-brother. And the text says that he loves her, but you can already tell that there's something weird going on. This isn't a normal type of love. This has to be some perverted, distorted type of love. It just doesn't read normal. It goes on. And Abnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. So what's up with this thing about Amnon being tormented by his desire for his sister? This is true of this sin, but like every sin, you can... uh, desire to participate in a sin, but all the while, the more and more you desire it, the more and more you you actually lose control over your will. And sooner than later, you're actually enslaved to that which you desire. You become so infatuated with it that it consumes you. You can't get out even if you want to, and it torments you, it warps you. This is best illustrated by the character like Smeagol Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He starts off It's a normal dude, and he gets a hold of the ring, and then his desire for the ring overtakes him. He becomes enslaved to it. He can't think about anything else. He won't do anything else except focus on obtaining or maintaining the ring's possession. It's mine. And what the Lord of the Rings beautifully does symbolically is it represents his enslavement to his evil desire for the ring and actual physical transformation. And so over the movie, you go, or over the movies or books, you get Smeagol turning more and more into like this weird, amalgamated, half-human, half-troll type of creature. And by the end of it, you get the character Gollum, someone who's completely enslaved to his own desires. And so Absalom is tormented with this eating him away because he can't get to his sister. She's forbidden. One, he would need the permission of her father to marry her, but that wouldn't happen. And two, it's against Levitical law. It's prohibited, just like adultery was. Incestuous relationships were outlawed in the Bible. Verse 3 says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, David's brother, just more crazy family dysfunction. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat eat it from her hand. So there's this Jonadab guy, and he devises this plan, and this is the sick thing of it. He is willing to throw this young girl into a horrific situation in order that he might be in the good favors of Amnon. Why? Amnon is next to be king. Look at the first line. And he said to him, O son of the king, Amnon's going to be king. 
I'm gonna get on his good side. Now this is an extreme example, but you always have to watch your motivations. We can really easily be willing to hurt someone in order to be lifted up. And Jonadab is willing to hurt this young woman in a horrific way in order that he might win the soon-to-be king's favor. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Now, it's not in this chapter, 2 Samuel 13, but if you look at 1 and 2 Samuel in the book of the Kings, a picture of David at this point of his life is painted. David at this point is extremely lenient to his children. There's no discipline. There's no punishment. He's uninvolved. There's sometimes where he hasn't seen his kids for more than a couple years. So he's distant, he's detached, he's not disciplining, he's, he's not managing his household well. And how could you? You're not only king, but you have a growing number of wives and multiple kids from these multiple wives. How could you? And so there's this sense at which you, you almost wonder, like if David was involved, married to one woman, and let's say, I mean, this sounds a lot for modern numbers, but let's say he only had eight kids. There's a sense at which you think he would have known something was off in his family. And the reason why you get this hint is because the author kind of clues you into this later. Other people knew something was off with this Amnon guy. Other people knew there's something whack with this guy. And so people wondered, and people immediately know when something happens, what did Amnon do? So it's like, David, man, could you have known that something was up? I mean, this request is, is a little bizarre. Have you ever been suspicious of something? Like just in your gut, you knew something was off? You knew something was off. You knew something was wrong. But maybe just like David, you wanted to believe the best in Amnon. Or maybe it was just too much of a hassle. You didn't want to address it. Or maybe you're one of the people who you don't have the courage. You like just to push things under the rugs. But for whatever reason, you knew something in your gut and you avoided it and it turned out to be true. There's another reason why the the author wants us to see this story like that. Is Amnon asked for cakes, it says. Cakes. The Hebrew word for cakes here is leviva. And leviva means heart-shaped pastry. Now, you have to be careful here because there's something called an anachronistic sin. and with, That's a fancy word that says you have to be careful not to read something that is true in the modern world back into the ancient world. So hearts in modern culture represent like romance. But you can't go, oh, hearts in David's time represented romance as well. However, there's evidence that the root word for this um, has erotic overtones. It's certainly this word has erotic overtones in the Bible, specifically in the book of Song of Solomon. So there's this kind of pastry that he asked to be made that has these kind of erotic overtones. But David, again, is either clueless, he doesn't care, he's not involved, his mind's somewhere else. So what does he do? 
Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in the sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. A picture of of Tamar is painted here, and it's one of righteousness and godliness, but also one of wisdom and knowledge. She's smart. Tamar is gonna give four lines of reasoning to try to get out of this assault. Now, you just have a couple verses here, and what the Bible does, it'll, it'll take an event and compact it into a few verses. So most likely, this is like a back and forth struggle, possibly, but you get the four reasons listed right after each other. The first thing she says, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. So the first thing she does, she appeals to what we'll call the kind of ethnic pride of Amnon. You are a Jew. You're an Israelite. We don't do this stuff here. We don't rape, we don't assault, and we certainly don't practice incest. We are Jews, God's people. We don't do that. Have some pride in who you are. But then in that same sentence, she says, do not do this outrageous thing. This is a specific construct, specific sentence that would trigger Amnon's mind back to another story in the Bible where an outrageous thing was done in Israel. Genesis chapter 34. In Genesis chapter 34, there's a parallel event that occurs. In Genesis 34, a woman by the name of Dinah is raped by another prince. Dinah is raped by a Gentile prince, and it's seen as shameful and humiliating and disgraceful. So what she's doing is she's hearkening his mind back to this story where the same thing occurs, and it's seen as evil and perverted, in the scriptures, Amnon, the scriptures you were raised to believe. But then on top of that, in that story, the brothers of Dinah seek revenge and actually kill the person who assaulted her. So it's like, you know how that ends. That doesn't chain Amnon. He's a slave to his desires. So she goes on, as for me, where could I carry my shame? The line of reasoning here works like this. You say you love me. You love me so much that you're tormented. But if you love me, you know what this will do to me. And this isn't saying that this is right. This isn't saying that the Bible approves of this. But you need to understand sexual ethics at this time period. If a young woman were to have her virginity taken away, that really, really ruins her chances to be married and have kids. Not 100%, but if you're going to marry an honorable, upright man, he is not going to go for a woman who's no longer a virgin. This is what makes Boaz in the story of Ruth so spectacular as he looks at Ruth's heart and her character, sees that she loves the Lord. That's, the, that's, that's why he's such an outstanding character, seen as the Goel in Hebrew. 
modern people and ancient people are very similar in this, but what is true of modern is more true of the ancient. A person's purpose was bound up in their ability to get married and have kids, to continue to propagate the family. So for her, her chances of having a life after this can be ruined. And Tamar's, if you love me like you say you do, don't do, don't do this. It doesn't work. And then she switches it to him. But as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Amnon, you are next in line to be king. You could have any woman in Israel you want. What will, pe- pe- what will people think of you? Just, you acted like a weak fool to bring your sister in in order to take advantage of her. You, you will be a fool in Israel. That doesn't work. So there's the last desperate, desperation line of reasoning. Now therefore then, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. The pause. How sick is this? Speak to the king. Who's the king? This is, now go talk to dad for he will not withhold this. So with Tamar, we don't know if she really believes that sentence to be true or not. Maybe, maybe she thinks, dad doesn't, dad doesn't care, he's not involved, Amnon's gonna be king, but rather than, than be raped and be thrown out, be better to be raped and taken as a bride. Now that sounds very harsh to modern ears, but that is standard practice in many ancient cultures because if a woman were to lose her virginity, if, unless she had some type of other means or mechanism for resources, provision, protection, which women in the ancient world didn't, then she's forced into a life of begging or prostitution, loneliness and isolation. So maybe she thought David would do that. I think she's just desperate right now and, and is telling him, I'll marry you. Go, go ask dad and I'll marry you. And then when she goes to King David, I think King David is still righteousness of a dude where he'll go, what is going on and put an end to this? She's just got a desperate, she's doing whatever she can to avoid the situation. But again, Amnon is so deep, he can't turn back. He's a slave to his wicked desires. But he would not listen to her and being stronger than she he violated her and lay with her. Does a royal, powerful man taking a woman, a woman that is forbidden to him, sound familiar? What did we just read? David. Saw Bathsheba forbidden by biblical law. She was married. He takes her anyway. Amnon sees his sister forbidden by biblical law, takes her. And what you see is this kind of parallel between father and son. And in one sense, that's sort of obvious, but the authors actually include little details to make it more obvious. They want you to know. 
So with David and Amnon, in both of their sins, you have two men of royalty. You have two acts of sexual immorality. That's kind of obvious, but there's words that are used that are parallel. Two beautiful women, both acts done in private residences. Both women experience great grief, and both will lead to the ultimate death of a son. That's like father, like son. The sins of the father will be harvested by his children. You ever, um, you know, some of you grew up in pretty decent households, so you didn't wrestle with this. But for, for others, you grew up in some pretty bad homes. You remember ever swearing to God that you will never be like your father, you will never be like your mother. And then sure enough, you find yourself in the same mess that they were in. It's these cycles. Repeat again and again and again. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for the wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolted the door behind her. So first, there's this very weird thing where all of a sudden, his hatred for her is greater than the love he has for her. You're like, how does that even make sense? What's, what's up with that? And it actually is, makes perfect sense. This is how sin works. It enslaves you. And when you realize you're enslaved to sin and you're consumed by it and you can't break free, the very object of your affection and desire becomes your enemy. But even though you hate it and it's your enemy, you can't get out of it. And every time you look at it, it reminds you of the failure you are. Go back to Smeagol and Gollum. Smeagol and Gollum, they, they love and hate the ring. They both love and hate the ring. The drug addict both loves and hates the meth. The alcoholic both loves and hates the bottle. The porn addict both loves and hates the pornography because it consumes you, makes you a hollow version of yourself, a sketch of yourself, lacking fullness. So he hates her and he turns on her. He says, get out of here. And this part's difficult for us to, stand, to understand because of the cultural gap, because she says, no, my brother, for the wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Why is that? She's kicked out. She loses the virginity. She's now seen as someone who did some type of inappropriate relationship at best or was involved in some really vile, wicked stuff with her half-brother. Now, if she tries to say, I'm innocent and I was raped, how did the plot work? Amnon kicks everyone out of the room, right? Who's there? Tamar and Amnon. One person's word versus the other person's word. Whose word gets believed, man or woman's? The man's word, word for sure in this culture. That's who's going to be believed. Secondly, he's next in line to be king. Whose word is believed? Next in line to be king or Tamar? Let's say Tamar still says, I'm still going to tell the truth. I'm going to say this, this man raped me. What's Amnon going to say? I was sick, alone in my bed. This woman tried to seduce me. 
Why would she try to seduce him? That's common practice in the ancient world, to build relationships both ways between men and women. If you look into history, even till relatively recent times, there's all sorts of weird incestuous relationships when there's monarchies to try to have pulls for the throne. So in sending her out, she's condemned to a life of solitude, loneliness, and shame. And he throws her out and bolts the door behind her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and she went away crying aloud as she went. This word for crying, ze'acha, it appears in the book of Exodus. It appears by the people of Israel when they've been enslaved for nearly 400 years, they cry out to the God of Israel, God, where are you? Where could you be? How could you allow this? How could you allow your people to be in this much suffering? Israel, Tamar, Za'akah, crying out, where are you? How could this be? And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? You see that? The first thing Absalom says when he sees Tamar crying upset, has has Amnon been near you? Absalom always was suspicious. He knew something was, as soon as he said, what happened? Has Amnon done something to you? He goes on, now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Not going to marry anybody, but the brother Absalom takes care of her. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. David heard and he was angry, but he did nothing. A variant reading of this said, David heard this and was angry, but he did nothing, for he loved Amnon. And sort of the way the word love is being used in this portion of Samuel, you know that's like a distorted type of love. Don't do anything to Amnon. He's next in line to be king. This would be a massive controversy. This would bring shame upon my line. Maybe he just didn't want to deal with it. Maybe he didn't have the guts to discipline his children. Or maybe it was made extra difficult because how could he punish a man for taking a forbidden woman when he himself had done so? Either way, the boy who slayed Goliath is now a man who couldn't defend his baby girl. As you're reading this, you probably are attracted to this Absalom guy. I am. I like Absalom. He hates Amnon. He knew something was up. He grew up hearing stories of his dad's courage, his dad's power, his dad's bravery, his dad's righteousness, but now he's in a situation where dad does nothing. So he begins to hate his brother, and he ultimately will begin to hate his brother to the point where he begins to play the role of God, and this is what the story wants us to see. In one sense, you kind of like this Absalom guy, He'll take justice into his own hand. He's strong. He knew better. But at the same time, Absalom's motives aren't just righteous. They're tainted with sin. 
and bitterness and hatred will grow to the point where he will kill Amnon. And as we'll look and see next week, the hatred and bitterness inside of him will grow so much that he will make an all-out war with his father. Absalom's now next in line to be thro- to be Absalom is now next in line to sit on the throne. I'll flash forward, we won't read the whole story, but this is how Absalom kills Amnon. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Now at this point, you're going like, this can't get any worse. Next week, it's going to get a lot worse. And there's a sense in which we identify with Absalom. But it's a dangerous thing to play God. It's very dangerous. So where are we at? I'm going to speak specifically to, to the men in the room for a moment. There's a part of us that can go the way of Amnon, and there's a part of us that can go the way of David, and not David when he slayed Goliath, but like the David right now at this point in his life. There's an Amnon and a David in us all. The Amnon is when you have power and might and you're strong. You use power and might and strength to get what you want. And you lust after things, and the lust takes over you, and sooner or later you're doing things that you thought you would never be able to do because the lust takes over you and the spirit of Amnon is alive and well. And then there's some of us who become David's apathetic do-nothings. We look at the injustices in the world. We look at the sin and all what's wrong in the world and we say, that's someone else's Batman. We let other people fight our battles. We stay home. Remember how David and Bathsheba started off? While all the other kings were off to war, David stayed at home. Our culture is filled with abusive men who use power to hurt the weak. And our culture is filled with lazy, apathetic, do-nothing, do-nothing men that look at the injustices, injustices of the world and say somebody else's problem. And we waver back and forth. And that transitions to the next person, a more specific person I'd like to talk to for the fathers in the room. We have more fathers right now in our country probably more concerned about what's going on on ESPN than they are concerned about the lives of their children. That may sound like an extreme statement, but I think when you look at the statistics, it's probably not that extreme. Men, one of the primary reasons you were put on God's green earth is to protect women and children. God gave you strength. God gave you a spirit. And one of the main functions and purposes for your life and time on this earth is to protect women and children. Now, simultaneously, you need to know that there's a culture right now that that's telling you that's not true. For some of you, it sounds obvious. Men are meant to protect women and children. But for some of you, especially you young people, you're growing up in a culture that has, has fed you lies, says that's not true. 
And it tells the women, you don't need men in your life. You're strong and independent. You never need men in any way, shape, or form. Women, you need men, period. Men, you need women, period. God made us to complement each other. We are not identical. So we're told masculinity is bad in all its forms. Why is culture saying that? Well, it's saying it because there's some bad forms of masculinity, amnon-like masculinity. You'll hear the phrase toxic masculinity in our culture. That's an amnon type of masculinity. But what culture says is masculinity is bad. And let me tell you, if you strip men of masculinity, you don't just stop amnon masculinity. You get David-like, apathetic, do-nothing, weak men. And those type of men let women and children suffer and they abandon their families. What's even worse, our culture will say, gender itself is a mere social construction. It doesn't exist. Men and women are actually just the same. We've been, you've just been taught wrong. There really is no difference. It's a lie from hell. Men and women are different in tons of ways. And thank God we are different. Beautiful, harmonious compliments to one another. But what happens when you strip men of godly masculinity? You get Amnons or you get Davids, and women and children will always be the first to suffer. Women and children will always be the first to suffer. If you are a man in this room, if you are a father in this room, if you're a single man in this room, if you've been divorced, widowed, it doesn't matter. One of your primary reasons for being on earth is to protect women, children, and the weak, and the vulnerable, and the oppressed. God put that in you for a reason. The next layer, talking to parents. One of the things that comes out in this story is the fact that because of David's failures, like his kids suffer. His kids just reap the consequences. And there are people in this room, I know, who have raised kids, and you look back, and maybe they're not doing great. Maybe they're not walking with the Lord. And you look back and you say, man, look at, I, I know I messed up here and here. Man, I, I, I was a bad parent here. I was a bad parent here. And this is all, this is, a lot of this is my fault, the, the reason why my kids are the way they are. There is a temptation for me and for people in your life to immediately want to encourage you and say, that's not true. Oh, none of that's true. You were a great parent. You were the best parent. Everything you did was great. They're just some rebellious child. And it, you know, it, it maybe encourages for a moment, but there's a reason why the guilt always comes back because deep down you know it's partially true. I would be lying to say that how we raise kids does not have implications for how they turn out. That I could not do that to you. And the reason why I can't do that to you is because there's two types of people in this room. There's people who are on the back end of parenting who are looking back. Maybe some of you look back, my kids are great, I'm so happy. And some of you look back and you're, you're terrified for your children. But there's also parents who are just bringing up young kids going to start families or maybe got a couple young ones and I need to be able to look you in the eyes and say, get your act together because it matters. If you don't, your kids will pay the price. They will suffer by your actions. Get your stuff in order. And the other thing about parenting you need to know is that 
Um, sometimes good parents raise rotten children, and sometimes rotten parents produce really good kids. It's not a direct one-to-one co- like correlation. So like, oh, my kid's bad, therefore it's my fault. But you have to at least be honest and say how you raise your kids has implications for how they turn out. It's not the number one determining factor, but it matters, and it matters a lot. So you gotta get your act together. Be the best godly man you could be, the best godly woman you could be, it matters. It really does. Now that's the rough bad news. The good news. Pastor Kevin Kersnabe a couple weeks ago gave a sermon and he introduced an idea of an oyster and it's simply this. Oysters through like a grit, an, an irritant entering into their shell, it goes in there and over a long time it can produce a pearl. It's, it's like your eye, if you get an irritant in it, you start to cry and the tear makes the irritant go away. The oyster doesn't have a tear, it has a substance called nacre and over time that keeps solidifying again and again and year after year and it could produce a pearl. In other words, through a bunch of grit and rough irritation, a foreign invader comes in, disrupts the system, but somehow out of that, a pearl is produced. Now, there are people in here who I know are wrestling with how they raise their kids, and you're terrified for your kids. I hear stories of it all all the time. And again, I'd be lying if I looked you in the eye and just says, you you were a perfect parent, none of this is your fault. And that might encourage you for a moment, but when you lay your head back down on the pillow, you you know otherwise. No one's a perfect parent. So I can't encourage you that way, but this is how I can encourage you and still hold intellectual integrity. I know with certainty that if God could take David's family with all of its vice and vile, atrocious actions, rape, murder, adultery, incest, if God can take that family and produce the pearl of great price, he can produce the pearl of Jesus through Mary and Joseph. If God can do that with David's family, he could take whatever junk you have in your family, whatever junk you have in your life, and he can turn it around for good. He can take it. David's story is about to get worse next week. And somehow God is going to bring about Jesus through that. So this is why it's so important and why grace is so beautiful. Grace does not say, you've never done anything wrong. You're a a perfect parent. I don't know how this could happen. Grace says, yeah, you weren't perfect. You messed up, some of you more than others. But God's here to remedy that. He's here to reconcile. He's here to forgive. You're worried about your kids? God loves your kids more than you do. He thinks about them more than you do. He knows the hair on their head. If you can trust God to take care of David's family and fix that mess, you can trust him with your kids. You can trust him with your family. Loves him more than you do. And that's why grace is so beautiful. It acknowledges reality. It doesn't hide from it and pretend like nothing happened. It acknowledges it. That's real, man. You messed up. But I'll tell you what. 
if God can take a wretch like me and a wretch like you and save us, save our kids, he can save our family, he can save our spouse, a husband, a wife, he can do it. They're not beyond, they're beyond the reach of the love of God. And so what David's family teaches us is man, parenting matters, but it also teaches us that no one's too far gone. Jesus can come from this family. Which brings us to the cross of Christ. The ushers, can you pass out communion? God can take David's family and turn it to good. He can take your situation. If God could take a Roman cross, which is a symbol of torture, oppression, and suffering, and make it a symbol of salvation, then he could handle your situation. And if God could take you in your wickedness and rebellion and turn your heart to him, then he could turn anybody's. And so as we take communion, I'm going to ask different people to respond differently depending upon where you're at in life. If you're at a place looking back at your parenting and you've got kids who are serving the Lord, thank the Lord for his grace. And if you have kids who aren't serving the Lord, in this time, tell God, I, I, I trust you with them. I'm giving them to you. I'm giving them to you. Because see, here's the thing. No amount of good parenting makes someone a Christian. You're not that powerful. The best parent in the world cannot change a heart from wickedness unto the Lord. Only grace could do that. And even though you think you might have that much responsibility in this world, you don't. So the weight of your child serving the Lord is not upon your back. Only God's grace can change a heart. And so, if you have the kids serving the Lord, you thank them. And if you're worried about your kids and where they're at, you give them to the Lord. And if you are an up-and-coming parent, you have young kids, you are single, you may have kids, you're going to pray right now and ask God to help me get my, my life in order to be a man, to be a woman after God's heart, not a perverted version of manhood or a perverted version of womanhood, but God's way. And help me be the best that I could be and trust you with my future family. And if you're single and you don't have kids, not going to have kids, this is a spiritual family. We need good godly uncles and aunts to come in. It's a family affair. We need you. You're important. Commit yourself to being the best spiritual uncle or aunt that you can be. Before we take communion... You don't have to if it's embarrassing or even if like your kid's right next to you. Um, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this. If you have a, um, a kid who you're worried about, not walking with the Lord, you can just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for him. You know, the second you become a dad, all of this changes.
Father, we give you our children. Protect them physically, spiritually, emotionally. Wherever they're at right now as we speak, I ask that your spirit would just, a conviction, a reminder of your love and your grace and your mercy. Heal the broken relationships that we have between children and parents in this room. Help us to trust you with the things we value most. We give you our children. You are a good father, better than we could ever be. You love them more than we do. Protect them, Father, and draw them unto yourself. Go after them. You are the good shepherd that seeks the lost sheep. So go. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with communion and a song that talks about communion. And this is how I'd like us to, to focus in on this. It's the theme of today. Jesus says, this bread represents my body. This is a symbol that represents a man's body broken. But somehow God takes that act and turns it from a symbol of brokenness to a symbol of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat. A symbol of brokenness to life. May we eat the bread. And in like manner, Jesus takes a cup, says, this represents blood spilt. You've been bought with a price. Blood was shed. And somehow in the horror of a cross, Jesus says, that no longer represents suffering. This represents the new covenant, a promise of God to you that as you trust in Jesus, there's nothing in heaven or hell that can separate you from his love. Let us drink of the new covenant. Father, we close this time asking you for encouragement, for grace, for mercy. In this time, may we give you our biggest fears and doubts and anxieties. May we trust you with those things. And for the young people in this room, Lord, may we be convicted to break the cycles of sin that have been passed on to us. Lord, give us grace, mercy, conviction, and strength. And as we reflect on what communion means, let us remember that all of this was done because your son took our place at the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.